We are in the book of Acts, if you've been with us. Uh, Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends to heaven. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. Uh, Acts chapter 3, the disciples, Peter, they heal a a, a lame man. Uh, They end up getting in prison because of or going before the Sanhedrin. Uh, Acts chapter 4, Peter's preaching. He ends up in prison. God delivers them. They end up before the Sanhedrin. Acts chapter 5, you have Ananias and Sapphira um, and uh, God dealing uh, with them. Acts chapter 6, the church organizes itself and you have the establishing of deacons. Uh, We talked last week about the end of Acts chapter 6 and one of those deacons, Stephen, uh, who is ultimately going to become the first martyr of the church, uh, is arrested, hauled off. And this morning, I was hoping we could get all the way through Acts chapter 7, but it ain't going to happen. So, I'm going to get through, I'm going to do something I don't normally do. We're going to go through the first 36 verses, but I'm not going to put all 36 on the screen. I'm going to pick a couple of highlights, and I want to encourage you to go back and read the first 36 verses. Uh, Next week will be Father's Day, and then we'll pick Acts chapter, the rest of Acts chapter 7 up uh, the following week. So, Let me say a couple of things about Acts chapter 7 so you understand it. Acts chapter 7 is Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin are composed of Sadducees and Pharisees and religious rulers. Stephen has been charged with blasphemy against God, against the temple. Um, And so those are serious charges. In a Jewish world, it's about as serious as you get. They've charged him with... Uh, blasphemy against Moses. They basically said, you're disowning all of this. And so Stephen now has an opportunity to stand before the Sanhedrin and answer those charges. And when you read Acts chapter 7, it's one of the longest speeches in the book of Acts. And it seems like he doesn't address the charges. But as you dig and as you understand and as you start to develop it, you start to see, no, he really, really does. And so um, the, the first part reads somewhat like a history lesson. And uh, you go, I don't understand how this is, is, is all tied together, and hopefully I can help you understand that as we go along. So let's look at the first part, Acts chapter 7. Uh, what he does is going to go through the history, and this morning we're going to deal with three characters that he talks about. Uh, we're going to deal with Abraham, we're going to deal with Joseph, and we're going to deal with Moses. Those are three that he talks about in the first 37 verses. So uh, let's just hit the highlights. Here's what he says. And he said, now this is, he's standing before the Sanhedrin, men, brethren, and fathers. So he's incredibly respectful in the way that he talks. Hearken, the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham, and when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Sharon, and said unto him, Get thee out of thy country and from the kindred and the land which I will show you. The first thing that he does is he... In an indirect way, he's addressing this whole idea of blasphemy against God. And he, he weaves into this idea that God was with Abraham before he ever got into the promised land. Okay? Now, that's significant because they're in the Jewish mindset with the Sanhedrin, whether they were Sadducees or Pharisees, standing before the Sanhedrin, you need to understand that at this point, the temple had become way up here, in some cases, equal with God. Because in their mind, where did God dwell? In the temple. 
So if you said something against the temple, you were speaking against God. If you said something against Moses, you were speaking against God because God, Moses was God's man. So Stephen very carefully weaves in this idea, starting with Abraham, who's the father of faith. Okay? He's very important in the Jewish world. So he starts right out by saying, look, let's talk about Abraham. God, the glory, notice what he says, the God of glory. Because see, this is, a, this is a Jewish idea. The Shekinah glory, the dwelling place of God, the tabernacle, the temple. He said, the God of glory came to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. They're in Jerusalem. They're going, hey, God dwells there. And Stephen right off the bat goes, hey, look, let's remember this. Before, before all of this, God was still with his people when they weren't here. And that's an important concept. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. But what we need to understand is what God says to him was get out of the country and your kindred and come into the land which I'll show you. You know the story. God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I need you to move. Abraham's gone. Uh, you sure? Yeah. Where am I going? Just start walking. And that's tough. That's a tough deal. But Abraham, the father of faith, goes out to a land that he doesn't know, trusting that God's going to direct him and give him the land that he gives him. And Stephen starts out there talking about Abraham. Then, notice what he says. He talks about him a little bit, and then he goes on to, to Joseph in, in the next passage. Go to the, um, verse 9. Talking about Joseph, here's what he says. And the patriarchs, moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt. Notice that next phrase, but God was with him. Now, Stephen weaves into this whole message in chapter 7 this interesting idea that you're going to see in and out as it weaves in and out. And here's the idea. The people who should have supported God's person rejected him. And Stephen does something here that's subtle, but notice what he says, and the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt. The patriarchs would have been Joseph's brothers. You know who we're talking about? The leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. So Joseph says, he starts laying this out, because eventually he's going to get to Christ. But he starts laying this idea out, and he goes, you know what? The leaders, the patriarchs, the people you talk about, the people who you say are great people, they rejected God's man Joseph. They moved with envy. They sold him into slavery. And notice what he goes on to say. And God was with him. And delivered him out of all of his afflictions, gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh the king, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. He says, God, in, in spite of this whole circumstance, even though the patriarchs rejected him, even though the patriarchs sold him into slavery, God was with him and God promoted him. In fact, God promotes him, and this is incredible when you think about it for a minute. God takes him from being a Jewish boy to the second in command in Egypt, the only one with greater power was Pharaoh himself. Now, we, don't lo we lose that context, but I want you to think about it for a minute. What if our president would have chosen somebody who didn't have an American citizenship to be vice president? How would that settle with you? They're not an American citizen, and they're the second most powerful person in, in the country. 
That's what happened. In fact, it got to the point that he didn't even know what he had. Joseph knew more about what he owned and what he, what, what, what he possessed than even Pharaoh himself. And he said, why? Because God was with him. And notice what he goes on. He throws out this in verse 13. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brethren. In other words, not only had they rejected him the first time, the second time they didn't even recognize who it was. It took the second time for them to realize who he was. Here's what, Joseph, or here's what Stephen's doing. Stephen is, is laying out some parallels here between Joseph and Jesus Christ. It's the idea that, you know what? Jesus came the first time and you guys didn't even recognize him. And that's ultimately where he's going to go with all of this. But right now he just lays out this idea that, you know what? God's man was Joseph. But the patriarchs rejected him. Even his own brothers rejected him. Didn't even realize it the first time. He's laying out this groundwork for it. But he uses Joseph as an example to say, you know what? God used Joseph even though the people didn't want to follow Joseph. Goes on to the next guy, Moses, going on. Here's the next one. In which time Moses was born and was exceeding fair and nourished up in his father's house three months. Notice what he says? And when he was cast out. See, there came a point where although, although um, uh, Miriam didn't want to, or not Miriam, um, Jochebed didn't want to get rid of Moses, she had to reject Moses, so to speak, and put him into the water, in the basket. And he brings up this idea. He says, when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter, a pagan, took him in and nourished him for her own son. In other words, it's like, even in this situation, what happens? It's a pagan who steps in and takes care of God's person. It goes on. And seeing, and then it talks a little bit more about Moses, and then it talks about at the end of Moses' 40 years in Egypt, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. You know the story. He finds Egyptian and a Hebrew fighting. He steps in. He kills the Egyptian. And notice, for he supposed his brethren would have understood how God by his hand would deliver them. But notice what it says. They understood not. Now he talks about Moses and how Moses stepped in to defend God's people. And he said, everybody will be behind me on this. But they weren't. Notice the next phrase, because the the next statement that he makes in here, going on, verse 26, uh, I think it's 26 or 27. But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? In other words, the people of Israel should have gone, yay, thanks for standing up for us, Moses, taking care of the Egyptians. You know what they did? They looked at Moses and said, you can't lead us. Who made you a ruler and judge over us? And he goes on to say this. Will you kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then fled Moses at this saying, and he was a stranger in the land of Midian where he begat two sons. Here's what's interesting. In this story, if you go to Exodus and you read this story, read this story in Exodus. In Exodus, I think it's 2.14, it says that Moses flees because of Pharaoh. The next verse says Moses fled because of his people too. You see, God had set up Moses to be the leader, and when Moses stepped forward to do that, the people said, we don't want you to lead us. You don't have any right to lead us. So Moses goes away for 40 years, and he's in the desert, and he's raising his kids. And then notice what the next phrase talks about in the next section. Uh, Going on, guys, one more. 
And when 40 years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. You know that you've heard this story about the burning bush thing. <clears throat> when Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight, and as he drew near, behold, it, the voice of the Lord came unto him. I've seen, and I have seen the affliction of my people, which is in Egypt. I've heard their groaning, and I've come to deliver them. And now I come, I will send thee into Egypt. Um, do I have the next verse, guys? Uh, or not? This Moses, whom they refused. See, God's going back, uh, Stephen's going back and going, look, they refused him one time, saying, who made thee a ruler and a judge? This same God did send to be a ruler and deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in a bush. He brought them out after he showed them the signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and the Red Sea and the wilderness for 40 years. He then says, look, because again, they had, they had accused him of being against Moses. And he's like, no, no, let me tell you Moses' story. Moses was God's man. Subtly, he says. But Israelites, you guys, Israelites, you rejected him. You guys wouldn't even follow Moses. I'm here saying Moses was God's man for God's time. But you guys wouldn't follow him. This starts to lay out, and we'll talk about it in two weeks, the rest of the message. And at some point, what's going to happen is they're so tired of hearing Stephen, they're going to shut him down. He didn't get to finish the thing. And they basically go, you're a dead man. And, and he goes and becomes the first martyr. I want to focus on these three people real quick because I think there's some lessons that tie into what Stephen's saying but also apply to us as we live our lives this week. Okay, So let's talk about the first one. The first one is Abraham that he talks about. And, and here's, I think, the lesson for us in Abraham. And you know the story. Abraham's this incredible person of faith. He's this person who, who is trusting God and all, all of this. But here's what you see in the life of Abraham. God has a plan. But Abraham doesn't get what it is. You understand that? In other words, I want you to put yourself in Abraham's position for a minute. There's no Bible. There's no Holy Spirit. There's no revelation of God. You're just sitting there doing your thing, taking care of your crop, taking care of your animals, in the wilderness, doing your thing, and God comes to you and says, hey, I want you to leave. Question God. Where am I going? Just start walking. Question God. How far? I'll tell you when to stop. God, why? Don't need to know. I got a plan. How hard is that? How hard is that? It's one of the reasons that Abraham is the father of faith. Because here's a guy who God says, hey, I want you to go. And he goes, okay. Tell me when to stop. He didn't know where he was going. He didn't know why he was going there. He just knew he was supposed to go. Look, you and I have got to wrestle with this idea. God has a plan. God has a plan for you. God has a plan for me. I want to know what it is. Why? Why? God's got a plan, right? And, and we need to wrestle with this because here's what happens. Things come into our lives and we get frustrated because we want it all laid out. 
And then when it gets all laid out, then we go, okay, God, it makes sense to me. Now I'll do that. God doesn't work like that. And the truth of the matter is, you and I couldn't handle it. We really couldn't. I mean, if God looked at me and said, at, when I was 20-some-odd years old, coming out of college, okay, here's my plan. You're going to go to Virginia. going to be a bad church situation. You're going to get frustrated. You're going to leave. You're going to go up Wisconsin for three years. You're going to end up getting frustrated up there because you don't get to spend enough time with teenagers. Then you go to, 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 to Iowa. For, for, for five years, you're going to work with teenagers there, and it's basically almost going to ruin your marriage because you're going to spend so much time with kids, you don't spend enough time with your family. And then you're going to jump out of ministry for about six months, and then you're going to end up preaching at some little church that you drive past the first time because you didn't even know there was a church in that town. And then you're going to be there um, where we are right now, 25 years at least. <laughs> Honestly, I looked at God, and I said, with all due respect, not me. You got the wrong guy. I'm from Chicago. I don't do country. I do asphalt and houses close together and 24-7, whatever you want to eat, whenever you want to eat it. That's what I do. I'm from Chicago. I like bumper-to-bumper traffic at 80 miles an hour. I like backed up on the interstate trying to weave in and out, trying to get ahead of everybody else. It's like a giant race game for me. That's me, God. You've got the wrong guy. Well, you know what God does? He says, you go down this road, and I'll take care of you. And then when you get down to that road, I'm going to send you down that road, and I'm going to take you down that road. And I come to the end of the thing, I go, God, this has been pretty incredible. And I look back at pivot points when I could have made a decision one way or the other, and I watch how God directed and led. And I look back and just, we were talking about this this week. We were sitting in there, the end of the day on Friday, we were sitting there talking about just how crazy it was that God has done what we, we, he's done here and how we're in the middle of building a second building and how a year ago we were pouring cement out there for a pad. There was no building out there. We've watched God do this, and we've watched God take care of the financial part of it, and we've watched God pay the bills as we go, and we've watched God, and we're just, it's like, this is crazy. Because you see, God has a plan. And whatever you're going through right now, this is what you've got to wrestle with. Whatever has come into your life has not touched you without going through the hand of God first. And I think we forget that. I think all of a sudden we find ourselves and, you know, we're in the middle of a divorce and we go, I don't understand how, this didn't take God by surprise. All of a sudden, your job situation implodes. God's not up in heaven going, wow, I didn't see that one coming. All of a sudden, you know, you start struggling with one of your kids or, 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 or a relative or, or a health thing or whatever. God's not up in heaven going, wow, I wish I would have thought about that one. He's got a plan. And it's really hard sometimes for us because we want, to, we want that question of got to know what's going on. You know, Lord, I want to an answer. And God doesn't work like that. But I'm here to tell you this morning, just like Abraham, God's got a plan for you. And just like Abraham, you're going to have to trust and you're going to have to go with what God has brought into your life and trust him that he can use it for his glory. And that 
is easy to say. It is very difficult to do. Joseph is the second guy he mentions. Here's what I think we learned from Joseph. It says in the text that God was with him. Now, here's what's fascinating. When you compare what Stephen talks about in the life of Joseph, and you go back in Genesis and you read the story, there are two very different viewpoints. In Genesis, the focus is on all of the stuff that, that Joseph goes through. It's on the difficulty. It's on the pain. It's on the, the misunderstanding. It's on the every time he tries to do what's right, he's punished for it. He sees all of this stuff that, that he doesn't get. And, 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 and Genesis talks about how hard it is for Joseph. <clears throat> when Stephen talks about it, Stephen doesn't talk about any of that. You know what Stephen talks about? God was with him the whole way. And God did this, and God did that, and God used him here, and God used him there. And all the way along, God was with Joseph. But when you read Genesis, you've got to stop and ask yourself, where's God? I mean, really, where's God? When he looks at the, and interprets the dream, and the dream comes true, and he asks a simple thing. Remember me when you go before the king. And the text goes on to say, but he forgot him. And he stays in prison. A guy who stands up and goes, I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to serve God. I'm going to be honest with God and, 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 and integrity and everything else. So Potiphar's wife comes along and tempts him, and he flees. He runs out. He does the right thing. So he did the right thing, and God should go, yeah, I'm going to reward you for the right thing, right? No, God goes, okay, good. Now you're going to prison for doing the right thing. He did the right thing. Shouldn't he be rewarded? Why does God have him in prison? Because God is with him wherever he is. When he's at the top as the second in command in Egypt, God is with him. When he's at the bottom and he's in jail and everything else, God is with him. And listen, this is what you need to understand with the life of Joseph. Joseph wrestles with this question of God's presence by saying this, because God is with me, how can I serve God wherever I am? Now, that's an important question to ask, because here's what happens for a lot of us. When we go through something, what, what question do we ask? Why? Let me ask something. Do you ever think you will get a satisfactory answer? God, why are you doing this? Uh, and God goes, okay, here's why I'm doing this. Okay, but God, why? Can, can, well, is there, can we do plan B? Can I hear plan B now? See, I, we're all going to ask why. I'm not going to tell you not to ask why, because we're all going to do it. But I want you to understand that why will never give you a satisfactory answer. If Joseph sat in prison going, why, God? Why did my brothers do this to me? Why, God? And I'm sure he asked it, but he didn't dwell on it. Why, God? Why, 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 why did the baker, uh, baker, butler, I don't remember who it was, or the candlestick maker, why did they forget me? You know, why did they forget me? Why, God? Joseph doesn't focus there. You know what Joseph focuses on? And this is the key. This is a big key for us. Because he knew God was with him, he focused on how he could serve God wherever he was. So when he's in prison, you know what he starts doing? He starts serving and taking care of all the other people. He starts saying, okay, Lord, how can you use this? Tell me how you can use this for your glory. Tell me how you can use this to, to, to do this. Okay, God, that's what I'm going to do. I'm in prison. I can't, I'll, I'll serve you here. 
Okay, I'm going to be second in command. I'll serve you here. Wherever God put him, his question was, how can I serve God through this experience? Whether it was at the bottom or at the top. And I think that's a great reminder for us. Because some of you are sitting here and you're, you want to know the answer. Why the divorce? Why, why are you having financial troubles? Why are, you, why are you going through health stuff? Why are you going through all? I get that you want to go there. But a better question, a much better question is, Lord, how can we honor you? How can we serve you? How can we use this to draw us closer to you and, and, and further your kingdom? How can we do that, Lord? And that's what you see in the life of Joseph. So much so that when Stephen gets to this message, he compares Joseph. He's making parallels between Joseph and Jesus. Talking about the idea of serving. Talking the idea about being part of God's plan. Talking about the part of God using him. And I'm here to tell you that whatever you're going through right now, God can use in a great way. But we've got to be careful because Satan wants to sidetrack us. The last character is Moses. And here's the thing about Moses. Um, there's a lot to do in the life of Moses, but Stephen focuses on the fact that Moses was rejected over and over again. And, and I want you to think about this, that story for a minute because what happens? Joseph is rejected, not because his parents wanted to, because his parents had to, put in a basket, pushed aside, adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, raised in Egypt for 40 years. And what that means is he probably had very little contact, if any, with his, with his parents. But yet, he was trained in all of the ways of Egypt. He understood their philosophy, he understood their cultures, he understood their language, he understood everything about Egypt. What do you think he would have been thinking about while he was doing all that? Wouldn't it have been easy to say, God, why do you have me here? God, why aren't I over there with my Jewish people? And then when he gets the opportunity to stand up and be counted for a Jewish brethren and do what's right, what happens? Bye-bye. Now we're going to go spend 40 years in the desert. Now, I think it's interesting. Stephen brings out something a lot of the other accounts don't. What happened in those 40 years in Midian, by the way, or those 40 years? He had two sons. He got to be a dad for 30 to 40 years. We're not talking about Moses as a dad very often. You got to be a dad raising his kids. And then, and then, you kind of resolved yourself to this is going to be your life, and then you see this bush burning up and not being burnt, and you approach it, and you find out it's God speaking to you, and God asks you to do what? Go back. <laughs> you go, okay, Lord, this didn't work so well for me. At three months old, I was booted out, almost left to die. At 40 years old, even my own people didn't want to follow me. I'm really happy out here with the animals. Don't make me go be with people, much less lead them. And God said, no, you don't understand, Moses. Now is the time. You see, here's what you need to remember. God has a timetable, too. Now, I hope I don't lose you with this. But follow with me just for a second. Because I think this is a fascinating study, and it's one of my favorite ones. But anyway, God has no concept of time. Time's a human concept. God is eternal, therefore God is above time. The 
incredible thing about the incarnation is God who is above time steps into time to be limited by time for a short amount of time in order to go to the cross. That's a phenomenal concept. You, some of you are going, whoa, I'm not even, you know, forget. You, you just dwell on it for a while. I'm going to help you understand it. <laughs> but what happens in our world? We are time-oriented people, okay? And we're in a culture which values time now even over money, okay? Um, we're watching this. Um, we, you know, we got to go golfing this week, and one of the things that, that we were talking about is how in the, in the, in the little course at Anthem, the, the membership has gone down with people who buy a season pass, and one of the reasons is people don't have the time to play, take out four hours for, for a round of golf. And so time has become more valuable than money, and that, that's just something that's happening in our culture a lot. Think about it for a minute. When your kid comes home and he says, hey, i got to sell 20 candy bars, what do you say? How much are they going to be? Because I'll pay you. When we're not going door to door. I don't have the time for that. Okay? Why? Because time is something we value. But here's the thing. <clears throat> so in our world, time is this thing that we measure everything by. But in God's mind, it doesn't work like that. His thoughts, are not our, his, our, his thoughts are not our thoughts. Our thoughts are not his. His ways aren't our ways. It's really, really clear. So just for fun, I, 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 I ran the math. Leo will check me and tell me if I'm wrong. But anyway, um, the Bible says a day with the Lord is a 1,000 years. Okay, now, that's a hyperbole. What that means is it's like if I tell you I'm so hungry right now I could eat a horse. You're not going to sit down and go, really, you ate a whole horse? You know it's just an expression. Same thing, a day with the Lord is a thousand years is just an expression, okay? It just means that a day with God is like a really long time. But for fun, I did a little math, okay? So here's the thing. If you ask God for something today, you pray and ask God. Say, God, I want you to answer this prayer. And God takes a day, or an hour, I'm sorry. God, God, takes, God takes an hour to answer your prayer. So you pray today at 11 o'clock, and at 12 o'clock, God's going to give you an answer. That's 41 and a half years. And you say, okay, well, God, I tell you what, could you just answer in a minute? God, I'm going to pray, and if the next 60 seconds, you'll answer my prayer. Uh, that's six months. Okay, God. I'm going to time it. And when I pray, I want you to answer within one second of my prayer. That's four days. See, we forget this. And we lose so, we put so much value on our time that we forget in the kingdom of God, it's a whole different world, folks. It's a whole different world. I've done this. I usually do this once a year. I can't wait to get in the new building and get a mark on the walls. But um, I, I got to do this because I think this helps you understand it because we don't, we don't get this. God is eternal. Okay? God created the world at some point. Okay? So we're going to use that as our starting point. So you've seen me do this. But so let's say this right here, this is our starting point. Those of you in the back, I'm all the way in the corner. This is our starting point. Okay? For the world. Okay? We know that Jesus Christ comes into the world and comes, lives here for 33 and a third year, dies on the cross, and that becomes a pivotal point in creation. Uh-oh. Ah, that wasn't what I thought about. All right, I'll just tall it over here. So <laughs> let's let this represent the cross, okay? Oh, 
depending on how, what thing you go, two to three thousand, two to four thousand years, something like that, since the beginning of time. So here we are. This is the cross. Okay. All right. Now, you were born about two thousand years after the cross, ballparkish. Okay. So we're going to let this dot represent your life. Okay, got it? Now, let's say, just for sake of illustration, that you get 40, uh, that, that, that you get 82 years on this earth. 82 years, got it? Day with the Lord is 1,000 years, that's two hours. In the time it took you to drive to church and go home, your life's over. <laughs> By that analogy. Am I making sense so far? Everybody follow me so far? Okay, so here, I lost you already. Um, See, be happy that God does. Okay, there we go. All right, there it is. That's your life. In concept of eternity. So we're going to go this way, and we go down there, and we're going to go down there, and then we're going to go over here, we're going to go down this wall, we're going to go down that wall, we're going to go all the way over to that wall, we're going to go back there, we're going to go back, we're go back in the new building, we're going to work our way all the way around, we're going to come all the way around, all the way back up to here, and we're still going to keep going. Now, here's the crazy thing. God says, I allowed you to be born at this point in history, at this point in eternity. And I'm going to allow you, however long you and I have, to make a difference in seeing another person come to Christ, in discipling somebody to grow in their Christian walk. And I'm going to allow you in this short amount of time, this little two-hour dot on the wall, to impact all of that. Moses, way back here, was brought to make a difference. Joseph, back here. Abraham, back here. And you and I are here today because of these three guys. Because God used them to be able to ultimately reach us, for us to be able to ultimately go and impact the world. So whether this is days, weeks, months, years, whatever, you have an opportunity right here. And it is crazy to me that God would actually look at us and say, I will use this brief time. James says it's like a vapor, appears for a little while and then goes away. James says, it, you know, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's instant, it's gone. Because when I put this dot here, in relationship to all that, you look at it and go, wow, that's not a lot of time. <clears throat> God said, Moses, it's time. Here's what I want to do with you right now for the next 40 years. Now, Moses... You don't understand it, but I'm going to allow all of eternity to be impacted by your little dot in the wall, just like you did with Joseph, just like you did with Abraham. God has a time to what he allows and does with our lives. And when you and I put our faith and trust in him and we say, Lord, our lives are yours, use it however you want to use it. That's what we're saying. 
And this is so important for us to understand this because we lose perspective of this somewhere along the line. In our short period, whether it be, you know, I mean, just think about it for a minute, okay? And I, I don't want to minimize anything anybody's going through. So I'm not trying to do that. But I want to say this. When I look at my whole existence right here and what I'm going through right now, and I understand that God has a plan, and I understand that God's presence is with me, how important is this that I get my way? Does that make sense? Because as a Christian, I look back to what Jesus did for me so that he could impact everyone for all of eternity, and I say, Lord, if you can use me in any way like here, like you were, I'm in. I'm in. Because you see, God has a plan. His presence is with us, and he has a time. And whatever has come your way, please understand. Please understand. It hasn't taken God by surprise. You may not feel that he's with you, but he is. And you may not understand his timing. Because you're thinking of time in earthly terms, not eternal terms. And that is so important for us to understand. With that in mind, I close with this. Stephen reminds us that God's got a plan. That he was at work starting in the life of Abraham. That although patriarchs rejected Joseph, God was with him and continued to use him. And God used Moses, who everyone also rejected. In each situation, it appeared that God was against them. When in reality, God was using them to change and shape the nation of Israel. He used them to fulfill a much greater plan. And he will do the same thing with us as well. Let's pray. Lord, it is a dangerous prayer to pray when we say we want you to use us. But Lord, the reality of it is there is too much at stake. The reality of it is, Lord, we have but a moment here to make a difference in the eternity of the people that you have put in our path this week. Lord, help us to understand it. Help us to embrace it. Help us to get to a point that we want you to use us in any way you can, Lord, to help people to understand. They need a Savior. And Lord, it is not just simply a decision to trust you, but it is a way of life in which, Lord, we are able to live in such a way that people see Christ in us no matter what we go through. So use us this week. And, uh, Lord, we thank you for even being willing to use us. So help us to be good stewards of it, these things we ask in your name. Amen. Um,